Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. It's Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Elise Hart Kipnis to the podcast today. Elise is a television sports reporter turned crime fiction writer. The first book in her Kate Green mystery series, Lights Out, is built. The next dangerous play will be released in September 2024. Lights Out is based on Elise's experience in the high-pressure, adrenaline-pumping world of live TV. Like her protagonist, she chased marquee athletes through the tunnels of Madison Square Garden and stood before glaring lights reporting to national audiences. Elise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted. So um, we're going to talk about this. There's so many crime fiction writers who came from a reporting background, but I want to start this podcast the way I usually start them uh, by asking you, when did you say to yourself, I want to write a book? I probably, I'm trying to think because I think of it based on how old my children are. So (laughs) I, I guess it was about 10 years ago. Um, I had stopped reporting when my son was born because I was traveling places. I, I would like live places for a month at a time to cover certain events. So I be in Florida for spring training for a month or covering the Ray, um, Caruth trial for two months. And, and it just was not the lifestyle that I kind of imagined when I, when I had kids And after, I don't know, like doing the regular kind of mom stuff for a while, I really missed writing. It it was the part of reporting that I surprisingly, to me, missed the most. And then I I realized, well, it took a little while to realize it, but I, I eventually realized how much I didn't know that writing one page is way different than writing, you know, 300 pages. So I started with classes. I started at um, the Writing Center for Adults at Sarah Lawrence Writing Center. I would say that the Guppies chapter at Sisters in Crime was a huge help for me. Um, I loved how it pinpointed very specific uh, elements, you know, like a suspense or forensic and and there was the interaction. So I would say the Guppies really helped me swim towards my goal. <laughs> and um, yeah, so slowly I, I, you know, made steps and progressed. So developing craft, um, you know, from being a reporter, you do learn how to tell the story quickly. Like you get right into the, <laughs> this the inciting incident. It's like, okay, I've got two minutes to tell a whole story. And so I think that that's helpful. But as you said, fleshing it out and adding subplots and <laughs> making yes. it 300 pages is a little bit different. It was so interesting because the first time I got through a draft, my biggest mistake was 
that I literally wrote it like a reporter. So I told you the who, what, where, when, why, and there was absolutely no suspense in the book, you know? So <laughs> it was like really boring. Um, yeah. So, so it took a while to understand. And, and I, I was always like a kind of like a, a nerdy kid. Like I loved to learn. So it was very exciting to like realize there are so many threads to what you're learning. And there's the plot and there's the character and there's the suspense. And so it was so fun. I feel like I, I should get, like, we should all get PhDs, right. For, for all the stuff we've learned to, to get there. I would say the one thing that as a broadcast reporter, I, I couldn't get away from it. And I haven't yet is as a broadcast reporter, you always write in the present tense, you know, even if say mm -hmm. there was like a catastrophe yesterday, you'd be, um, you know, eight hours have gone, you know, uh, no, you wouldn't say that. You know, the police are still on the scene of blah, 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 that happened. So the one thing I couldn't compromise on just because it wasn't enjoyable was writing in the present tense. I needed to write in the present tense because that literally was my voice. And, um, it's more popular now, but when I first started, it wasn't quite as popular. That's such an interesting explanation because, of course, uh, Hank Philby Ryan, who, you know, is a New England broadcast reporter. Yes, um, yes. Uh, <laughs> I think people who know she's such a lovely, gracious person and oh, yeah. truly one of the kindest people. But she's a tough reporter. I mean, I... I've seen her for for years, like making people quake. But she writes in present tense too, and and I wonder if it's the same reason um, because of her reporting background. You just go. First of all, she she is so lovely. She sent me when I was starting out. My book was coming out. A message like, "If you need anything," and yeah. when I saw her, like you just feel like so loved. You know, yeah, she she's, she's just so giving. She's she's so incredible. Giving. Yeah, she is. Um, I, I wonder, I mean, when I read books from broadcast reporters and, and not just like suspense and thrillers, but I remember reading biographies and just all sorts. I've noticed that many of them write in the present tense. They sound very conversational, like they're talking to someone. Um, and that's all stuff that's ingrained in us for writing um, as a broadcast journalist. I mean, you're, you're, you're really having a conversation. That's the goal in what you're writing. You're not reading. Someone's not reading what you're saying. So even little things like you don't start a sentence, well, blah, 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 blah happened. Because when you're listening, it's hard to follow a comma yeah. that's, you know, I'm not good at grammar, so I know that each of those things have names, but you're very straightforward in what you say because to yeah. hear commas and then you have to refer back, you can't rewind the tape or back in the day you couldn't. And it's certainly not something someone wants to do now. So the style was very, very ingrained in me um, to do it that way. I tried something new in book two, in Dangerous Play. I have some flashbacks. And I did write those in the past tense, but it it was hard. Like I had to go back and be like, okay, wait, I have, 
ah, you know, this, and I have to change it. Uh, like, I, it was like a little bit of a second language. I had to really think about it. Um, but it was fun to expand and do something a little bit different. <laughs> so I'm going to rewind our conversation just a little bit. You just you decide you're going to spend more time at home. You're not going to go in the road for two months following a trial or, or doing yeah, what you're yeah. doing. You're going to write a book. So you add this to your, you know, this is this my next hill to climb, <laughs> my next <laughs> challenge. You take classes. But was it always going to be crime fiction for you? Yeah, it's such a good question. So, um, yes. And, and it's kind of an interesting journey. So first, a funny story. I'm sitting around the table at Sarah Lawrence Writing Center, like one of the first days. And it's a general fiction class. So people are writing all different things. And, and the teacher is like, okay, who do you want to write like? Who do you want to be like? And it's a very literary community there. So people are like Margaret Atwood, Joyce Carol Oates, you know, on and on. Honestly, I hadn't even heard of. Those are the names I knew, like some of them I didn't know. And they get to me and I'm like, John Grisham. <laughs> and, you know, I was like almost apologizing um, because I was so out of sync with the group. Um, writing about a sportscaster is obvious. Like uh, that's what I used to do. So that's why I was writing that. But I wasn't ever really sure why I picked um, suspense until about a year ago. And um, I, I always liked the genre, but I never thought it went deeper than that. And before I was a sports reporter, I was a news reporter and I covered a lot of tragedy. I worked for WNBC in New York and News 12 mm. Long Island, and I had covered the Flight 800 crash. Mm. I had covered um, the Long Island Railroad massacre. Um, trial and like every day was a very serious crime. And my, I remember my mom had been saying to me, she's like, you're always, because I was feeling really down and I was talking to her, but she's oh. like, well, your every day is death and tragedy. And I hadn't really thought about that. And, and when you're covering it, you don't feel like it's appropriate to appropriate to feel bad about it because it's their tragedy. It's not right. your tragedy and right. you're there to report it. And flight 800 was especially hard. I mean, I would come home every day cause I was doing morning live shots for a month for NBC and I would come home every day and just be like bawling. Um, and then I heard someone about a year ago speaking and saying that they write this genre to get the darkness out and to kind of process darkness and stuff. And it kind of like was a light bulb moment mm -hmm. because I think that I am writing thrillers suspense because it's getting that stuff out of me that had been buried and has been buried for like decades. So the sports part is like the fun part or the lighter part, although you know, there were moments, I mean, I was a woman in a man's world, so it wasn't like all lollipops no. and candy, but the um, the day-to-day -day trauma I covered, uh, I think is the reason why I, um, I went towards suspense and thrillers. Interesting. Interesting. And so in your Sarah Lawrence writing class that you're taking to try to learn 
the craft, you know, and, and you're vulnerable because this is something you want to do and it's a new skill set. And it's a literary fiction, sounds like mostly class. Yeah. Um, were they supportive of you as a genre writer? Did you have someone else in the class who is also a genre writer who you could go out for a drink afterwards and, and and bond with? Or how did that go? Because oftentimes for genre writers, those kinds of classes can also be stifling because, you know, they're, they, they don't love genre. Yeah. You know, they were very nice. I would say it was a really good place to start. I'm still friends with the feature that I had there. And she just wrote a thriller. She's like, you're the one who's going to make money. Not that I'm making money, (laughs) but you know, she's like, you, you know, good for you. Like they, they were very nice about it. And, um, especially the, the teachers there who I'm still in touch with. Um, and, and then I did switch to Gotham writing center, which was online. And I, I focused on mysteries and, um, that, that was, a, that was a, a good progression because I really needed the specifics of the mystery thriller craft. And I feel like that helped me get to the next level. Um, but, but for the most part, like everyone was pretty sweet, um, about it. I think because we were all new, no one was published, you know, we were all like beginners and, um, figuring it out. Oh, and, and what I was going to say is I was very appreciative of the rules they set before class. Like, this is how we review manuscripts or pages, you know, you say, and I, and I've kept this, like when I read someone's, when I'm a beta reader or when I talk to someone, they're like, you say what you like, and then you ask questions because you may not like someone's genre or it may not appeal to you. And so it felt like a safe environment because they set the parameters with how you critique other people. And, and I thought that that was a, a really smart um, mm-hmm. thing to do. And I think it made everyone feel a little more comfortable because you never heard like, oh, that sucks or that's stupid or anything like that. That you get from the agents when you send it out. <laughs> but that's a fascinating way of um, of framing a, a critique. I mean, I've, I've also heard... Um, you know, start with what you liked about it. Um, and, but don't say I, I, I didn't like, or, you know, it doesn't work for you. Like, you know, use, use language that's helpful. Cause not like, is like, what's that, you know, but did, yeah. I think that's a wonderful way of doing it. You know, did you, um, is this character's arc going to do this or whatever, it, you know, implying it's not working here. <laughs> I don't understand where she's coming yeah. from. Exactly. And they even had um, suggestions or rules for the people listening there. They said, you can't speak during it. Just write everything down, take a day to think about it um, and process it. And, and I think, I think one of the things that um, I learned through the years is, and, and I would think it's a very good thing for new writers, um, to to try to understand if you're writing a novel and you're really committed to it it's not that a draft is bad 
It's that a draft isn't ready. You know, Mm -hmm. like there, it doesn't mean you're not a good writer. It just means you have to fix things. It's not an easy task to write a book. It's like building a building and and it's building isn't going to look pretty until it's complete, but it, 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 it's, there's so many places you have to improve potentially and Mm -hmm. learn. And so to not hear critique, and I'm so sensitive, like, you know, I'd come home, I'd start crying. My son, Ryan would be like, you know, mom, because he, he would like read over what someone said, this isn't even bad. Like, why are you so upset? And (laughs) read this again, you know? And, um, yeah. So, so just to realize that it it takes time and mm-hmm. a lot of things just aren't done yet. That's such a great thing to, to talk about and to say, uh, and to, I love the building metaphor because it also speaks to the importance of the foundation, you know, which yeah. is knowing structure and writing and, you know, understanding the rules, even if you're not going to follow them, you know, um, but, but making sure that foundation is strong so that it all can, can exist, but you just got to keep going and, and trust. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. Are you a plotter? Are you? I am a plotter um, who has loosened up a little bit. Um, but I will never be, a, I tried and it's not how I work. How, how do you work? Well, the first book, and I don't know if this was your experience too, you kind of try everything because, you know, you just over and over again, trying to figure it out and everything. And then the second book I had a year, you know, it took forever to write the first book and the second one I had a year. So I was very... Uh, mindful of my time frame, mm-hmm. and so I plotted out on an Excel spreadsheet, which isn't really plotting. I realized, like, because I didn't outline, I, I mapped out my crime, mm-hmm. who the killer is, uh, the clues and the red herrings, mm-hmm. and you know, I even like put the red herrings in red and the clues in blue, and I knew what my secondary plots would be. But then I just wrote. Um, but I tried to stay to the map, um, which I did largely, like the, no big points changed. Um, so that kind of worked for me. So I, I guess it's kind of in the middle. So you had an Excel spreadsheet with, with major targets, with guideposts. Yes. It's this scene is going to say these three things. And here's the clue. Here are the two red herrings. How I get there. And what, how I, how I develop that scene, I'm going to figure out on the way, but, but I know that I'm going to get there and we're going to have to achieve these things in that scene. Is that exactly. what you're saying? Exactly. That's interesting. So, um, you know, that's an interesting way of doing it to make sure that you've got the dramatic structure, that you've got everything in there, but you obviously came to it with an idea. How do your ideas develop? um I guess for the first book I and the NBA was the first story I ever covered in sports so I felt um very familiar with it I felt very familiar with Madison Square Garden where I 
you know, have Kate, my main character, go through like hidden tunnels and the interactions with the team and and all of that. Um, and while I don't live in Greenwich, Connecticut, I live next to Greenwich, Connecticut. So mm. I'm very familiar. I have friends there. Um, and then I don't know, it just sort of developed. I love like you know, soapy drama shows. So I needed the suburban element to it and <laughs> that kind of stuff. And um, and then the second book, it takes place in New York City at the Olympics. I have the Olympics in the city. And um, Kate, you really get to know Kate's background because she was a gold medal Olympic player. So so the flashbacks are to her um, days on the national team and may have implications to the murder that takes place. And I know I'm like very circuitous getting to your to your answer, but I guess I guess I picked the sport um, okay. and it made sense for the second book. Um, my friend and co-president of Sisters in Crime Connecticut's like, oh, your second book should delve more into Kate's background. So it made sense to make it the sport that she plays and have mm -hmm. people from her past in the present and have the murder there. So, so that was the second one. And then, um, you know, I'm hoping there's a third one. And um, I have talked a bit to um, my editor and talked about the potential of doing the U S open tennis, which mm -hmm. is another sport I covered, you know? So I guess I picked the sport first and then um, I have a friend that like we go back and forth and she helps me with the plotting and we were like, what if this happened? What if that happened? And we sort of like, she, she helped me. She's younger than me. So she can use Figma. Do you know Figma? It's I like don't. a spreadsheet. You can put pictures on. It's like, it's like a computer um, bulletin board, which uh. F-I-G-M-A.com, which I could never figure out how to place things, but she did it because we did it together. And um, and then I refer back to it. So it's there. And then, um, yeah, but I, but I feel like I can't start writing until I have plot. Yeah. And I know some people start with character. Some people start with setting. I need to know the plot. What about you? I, you know, it's, it varies depending on, on the, um, on the book, but ideas, it's interesting how an idea will take hold. Like you'll, for you, you're thinking about U.S. Open and you just sort of start thinking about U.S. Open, U.S. Open, U.S. Open. And then it's like a gravitational pull of, well, <laughs> yes. and this is what it's like. And this is what the venue's like. And here's how people get there. And Here's how much people drink while they're there. I mean, right. I just think, you know, the U.S. Open has a lot of aspects um, of and the money and the, this and the, that. I mean, it's it's a lot that you can work with there. So it's sort of a gravitational idea. And for you, because you're a reporter, I'm not surprised that plot is what what propels you first because when you're a reporter you've got to figure out why what's the hook how am I what why why do people care how I'm gonna what I'm gonna say for the next 90 seconds you know yeah that's a great point I, I hadn't thought about that um yeah I find it very unsettling if I don't know the plot like I'm very focused on that and 
right now for the U.S. Open book. Now I now that I have it, I'm um, doing some research. There's this great Netflix documentary, um, Breakaway, I think it is, or Breakpoint, Breakpoint maybe. And then I'm reading all these autobiographies and um, just oh, I I had the funniest thing happen. So I, I went with one of my sons to the U.S. Open to do research. And we're on one of the side courts and it's a really good match. And all of a sudden I bolt and I start <laughs> leaving. And my son's like, what, where'd you go? I'm like, there was a guy with this giant refrigerator. It would be a perfect place to hide a body. You know, I needed to get pictures of it. He's like, oh my God, you are crazy. But like, you know, he's watching the match. I've, I've covered the U.S. Open. I've watched the matches. I need to know about the refrigerated uh, metal yeah. thing that can hide a body. <laughs> well, I, I do think it's also so interesting for readers to have access to the behind the scenes of these things. You know, to get the tunnels of Madison Square Garden or the behind the scenes in a U.S. Open and, you know, and what can happen there. I think that that's, uh, you know, that's always fun for readers is to get the access. Yeah. It was fun to go back to that stuff. Um, I, a lot of people have asked why I chose to write as a sports reporter versus a regular reporter. Cause I, I did spend more years as a news reporter, but when I went to sports, it, 80% of it was really fun you know, and different and exciting. So when I go back in my brain, I like to go back there. And just to talk about the U.S. Open, um, I was there when Venus Williams beat Serena Williams in their first um, face-off in the championship game. And because I worked for Fox Sports Network, I was one of the like three or four stations that was put in a private room and would get a one-on-one interview with Venus Williams before the press conference. And she comes in and I love her. Like she's the most down to earth person. And I was like seven months pregnant at the time. And she looks at me and she just won the U S open. I mean, you know, crazy. Yeah. And she's like, are your feet swollen? Um, you know, cause I think about like, I have such big feet and if I ever get pregnant, like, you know, what's it like to be pregnant like that? And I I was like, you just won the U.S. Open and you're like even noticing me. I, I just, <laughs> she was so down to earth. And then she was so sweet when, when you could see the angst about beating her sister. She's like, oh, I was yeah. excited to win, but, you know, I saw Serena and she made this like really bad hit. And I'm like, Serena, you could do better than that. And you could just see her, her, you know, her her conflict with beating her sister like it it was tough emotionally for her she just was a very um very nice person and so it's fun to go back to the US Open you know and then go back in my brain to the US Open um it, it's quite counterculture there to be one of the reporters you you go inside this area that's um you know, blocked off to everyone else and, and have desks. Like they set you up for those two weeks where you have spots to do your work from. And there's a press room and every, um, every player needs to come in there after the games, all the big players. And yeah, I saw some amazing matches like between Agassi and Sampras. And, mm. uh, you know, it's just amazing. It's, 
I grew up going to the U.S. Open, so it was really fun on so many levels to return there. But Elise, you also mentioned or alluded to, or I'm also imagining, um, being a woman sports reporter. Yeah. Um, even not that long ago, I, I probably even now, isn't always uh, an easy thing to do. And so when you set your character in that world, there's also, it's fun and it's interesting, but I'd imagine there's some conflict for her and some unease in situations that she just as a woman has to navigate this world. Yeah. And I, I start the book with that. I start the book with, um, Kate's been suspended because she was caught on a gotcha video, um, yelling at an NBA player who called her a bad mother. And that's part of the arc that you learn what prompted that, what problems in her life that became public. And this horrible player who had called her names, but that part wasn't caught on the video. It was only her response telling him, you know, he had no right to do that and saying some choice words and stuff. And a couple of people asked me if that ever happened. And it, I never yelled at anyone, but it was so cathartic to write that because I, I must have wanted to yell at people so many times. And, and I did have situations like when I was at the U.S. Open for golf and Pinehurst, um, and it was the year that uh, Payne Stewart won, the public relations officer for the event, I, it had to have been because I was a woman. He had never met me before. I was with one of the major stations. He he would do everything for like ESPN. And back then there was CNNSI and the Golf Channel. And, you know, our ratings were better than some of those stations. And he just like would diss me every time. But he had promised that I would get the one-on-one -on -one interview along with the other stations for the winner. And like, how do you go and cover a game, uh, an event and not get an interview with one with the winner of the game of the, uh, I'm keep calling it a game yeah. uh, of the tournament. And on the day of the final um, round, Payne Stewart wins. And the guy kept saying, you're going to get it next. You're going to get him next. And finally, my cameramen were like in an area where they're being he's this PR guy. I don't even remember his name was walking Payne Stewart away. And my camera operator said, you are not getting the interview, which like I couldn't imagine. And um, he's like, do something. <laughs> so I screamed, Payne, can you please do an interview? And Payne turns around and the guy's literally trying to pull him away from me. And Payne stops him and says, no, I want to do this interview and walks back to me and does it. And he really saved me. He didn't have to. And the guy was clearly trying to get me in trouble. Um, and it took me so long to realize, really until the Me Too movement, that um, it wasn't my fault, like that all these instances um were discrimination against women and and, right. and and things I put up with because at that point in my career, um, 
which is kind of at just the end of the night, very end of the nineties to the 2000. Like I was just happy to be in the game. Like for all the faces that were women on camera, maybe there were four of us, but there were 40 men mm -hmm. in the locker rooms. And so we were, there weren't a lot of us. And, um, and, and I did have so many moments where I was mistreated, mm -hmm. um, because of that. And, um, and a lot by public relations people, you know, not just players. I mean, so, so I, when all that happened and I'm rethinking what happened, cause I felt like it was my fault, you know, mm -hmm. after that, I never even thought like I should be complaining. I should say something. Um, I thought, oh, thank God for Payne Stewart. He saved my job. And but why did this happen? And now when that when all that happened, like my husband's like, when the Me Too movement happened, you were just like, go, oh, go, you know, because yeah. cause like I was lucky, like if I had zigged instead of zag, because a lot of the people I had interacted with, it could have been so much worse. And I didn't end up at some of those horrible things that happened. But, you know, I saw it on um, lower levels and yeah. it's, it really did trigger something inside of me. Well, I mean, those are microaggressions. I mean, and that's, that's, you know, we're, we're all talking about this, how, it, how belonging is showing up as you are and, and being accepted and fitting in yeah. is having to act like everyone else or dress like everyone else or use the same language or do whatever so that you fit in. And the goal has to be belonging. And yet when you're in those situations, you're trying to fit in because belonging isn't allowed. You know, yeah. it's not, it's not there. And those microaggressions you can dismiss and think they're part, they're you. But I think, you know, for a lot of people, uh, you know, who worked back in the day, we look back at things in horror of the stuff you put up with because you just needed to get along. And I'm grateful that this next gener this new generation isn't putting up with it. I mean. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I was a mentor at um, Brown's radio, Brown University's radio station where I went to school um, for about 10 years. And uh, especially with the journalism students. And I'm so in awe of them. And, um, and, and, the the way they do stand up for themselves and it it's so inspiring to me to see them how thoughtful they are how how um they take care of themselves and call things out in a way that you know again like i i just felt lucky to be in the game so i just thought it was part of the price you pay for having been one of the few to make it, you know, there mm -hmm. in quotes. Yeah. Um, so, so I do have in all my books, a lot of, um, you know, I, I was just touching it. Um, parts of that, um, there, there was a, a player that an NBA player that I covered who made it very clear that we didn't belong in the locker rooms and was very aggressive, um, against women. And you have to understand, like, we don't go right into the locker room. Like, they have time if they want to take their showers and get dressed before we go. And 
it, it just, it, it was in some time, some instances, very, um, blatant and, and it wasn't sports. I, I feel like also the news industry, especially in New York city, um, was very hard. Um, and there was a lot of sexism there, mm-hmm. um, you know, equal or more to what I experienced in sports. Mm. Uh, it was just, it was hard, you know? We talk about you reached a proficiency in a place in your career and, you know, did a reboot for for a number of reasons, but approached being a novelist and a writer with openness because even though you'd excelled, you know, you'd done all these things, you were going into a field where you needed to be humble and learn and figure things out. Um and was that challenging for you? As because I think a lot of the folks listening to this may be um, thinking of writing as a second career or in addition to, so that they're good at something already, and then you're going to humble yourself by being not good <laughs> at writing for a while until you get better. And as you said, every, even the best writers, that first draft is not beautiful. I mean, it takes a while. So was that challenging for you or did you embrace, did you embrace the newness of learning? I think I embraced the newness of learning and I don't think I ever in the moment felt that what I had achieved was, you know, as good or as high as someone looking in, like I, I was always aware of like, oh no, what will my next live shot be? You know, I'm on this tightrope. Will I fall off? Like it was, it, it's a hard business, you know, it's, it's yeah. really rough. And, and like the amount of times I can tell you that, you know, people criticize my hair and like, like, you know, it was like 90 degrees once and I was in the subway and I have curly hair and you know, it like frizzed up. And I got a call about that from the producer and the producer wasn't even trying to be a jerk. He was like trying to help me because that was going to be an issue on television. But like, oh, you know, the, I talk about in my main character talks about the, how she hates TV makeup. Cause like I hate TV makeup. And, um, so, so I never felt the confidence that I think you're talking about in my first career Um, so it was easier to feel humble about my second. I I think I just always had like that fear. Will I get good enough? Can I do this, um, more than anything else? So when someone would be like, oh, but you're good at writing, then I just kind of like, uh, you know, um, but I think anyone who listens, I really believe that if someone commits themselves to writing, and stays with it, then they have to be a good writer because they're so passionate about it because there's just a lot to learn. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think that they, you just need to stay with it. And you know, I stayed with it for so many years, like eight years, you know, and um, there are a lot of levels to learn. And um, also in finding an agent, if you go that route, just because you get a rejection, and believe me, I didn't think this at the time, 
it doesn't mean it's not good. It's like they may not need that on their list or they may yeah. have someone like that. Right. Or for a long time, sports wasn't trending. All of a sudden, sports is like a big deal for thrillers. And I have comps, but, you know, for years, I didn't. Um, yeah. So it's also what wave are you riding and all of that. But I think community is really important. Like Sisters in Crime has, and I'm not just saying that because I'm doing this podcast with you, um, really gave me a community that helped me make the next step. And and it's literally true because my co-president, Tessa Weger, um, became a beta reader of mine. And I had this journey as president of our chapter. Like I found my agent during that time. And um, she really pushed me to keep going. And um, to go to one of those like, you know, quick dating, pitching mm-hmm. um, events. And um, and that's where I got my agent. But the community of Sisters in Crime literally propelled me to keep going because I, I was when I was talking to Tessa, I was literally starting to make a list of publishers that take unagented manuscripts. And um, she's like, no, I really think, you know, um, so, so community is the most important help that a um, writer starting out um, can find. And Sisters in Crime is, you know, for me, uh, really the, such an incredible support system. So that was going to be my next question. I think that as writers, you know, it's such a solo act that you don't always recognize right away that you need community. So did Sarah Lawrence help you understand the the help of community or what what propelled you to finding Sisters in Crime? Every writing place I went, whether it was Sisters in, whether it was Sarah Lawrence or Gotham, uh, encouraged you to find a community in, in your genre. So at Sarah Lawrence, someone literally came in as a speaker one time and said, if you're a thriller or mystery writer, join this. If you're, you know, women's fiction, this. And they did. They they push community. Um, That's great. So it was great. It was really great. And um, Gotham did too, Gotham Writing Center. I, I um, yeah, everyone, everyone did, which was so nice. And um I'm just trying to think. Yeah, everyone talked about how important that was. And it was something I never heard of, I never knew about, and all of that. So makes such a difference. So so just amping it up, you um, and Tessa Weigart decided that Connecticut needed its own chapter. So there's the Sisters in Crime New England chapter, which covers the six New England states. And there's also a New York, a tri-state, which is Connecticut, New York, New Jersey. But you, Connecticut said that they're going to, they wanted their own chapter. And that's some, um, you know, there's some some challenges to that, right? I mean, is you don't just sort of say, oh, I'm going to be a chapter. And you've got to figure out how you're going to um, get a board together, what that looks like. Um, and you decided to be co-presidents in order to get this chapter off the ground and running, which is such a smart thing to do because it can be so much work, but at the same time, a shared leadership, you know, can, can 
also help make sure it's going to go forward because you can, you know, always have yeah. that model in place and things like that. So what compelled you to, to start a chapter? So what happened was it actually wasn't mine and Tessa's idea. Um, I think someone had reached out to uh, Kim, who who runs the chapters, um, and mentioned that they thought Connecticut could use a chapter. And then Kim reached out to everyone who lived in Connecticut from the database to kind of have a discussion to see how many people were potentially interested. And there were a lot of us, like 40 people, I think, initially came onto the call. And it was really a logistics thing. Um, Connecticut's a big state. It is a big and state. And for us, like Tessa and I live closer to the New York chapter. Um, but everything was in the city. And that's still a, a commute. And for people who were further north, most of the New England stuff took place in Boston. And that's a commute. So Connecticut has so many authors and there really wasn't stuff going on. And it was like at the end of COVID, I think. And um, they asked for, it was a discussion about what it would take and that we would need a board and this and that. And Tess and I on the call realized we were like one town away from each other. So we met for coffee and like instantly bonded and then kind of said, well, what do you think about co-president? Because they needed co-presidents. And um, we were so excited. First of all, like she became an instant best friend, you know, so it's been amazing. Um, I miss her so much now that I'm in Key West, even though we talk all the time. Um, and the friends that I've made through Sisters in Crime, like Kim and all these Connecticut people, Ange, um, it, it, it's so great, you know, Roberta. Um, so, so there was this in interest, um, you know, instant interest. And, and we, we were really lucky to have, um, people like Ange Pompano who had experience on other boards and wanted to help support it. And um, so it just kind of took off. Uh, and we really um, we really made a point of our first priority for the organization was to make everyone feel welcome. And I don't know if that sounds silly, but it was like, first no. and foremost, it was about just having a nice environment. Like, like, if you make a mistake, no worries. Like if something's a little late, it's okay. Like we just want to be a community of support. If you want to volunteer, great. We will find something for you to do. Um, Cause I had been on other boards and you know, they can get yeah. hard. They can overtake things. So so we, we really worked on that and it's just been an unbelievable experience. And we, it's been really nice, the support we've gotten from New England and from New York City and discussions about um, doing joint events. And and many members who live on the borders of either belong to both chapters. I mean, it's That's $20 right. to be in our chapter. So, you know, um, and so it's nice. It's a nice sisterhood or siblinghood. <laughs> yeah, it's siblinghood because it's it's yeah. uh, it's it's all encompassing. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think, uh, you know, for those uh, folks who are live in the 
western part of the United States or other parts, you know, when we say Connecticut's a big state or, or New England's a big area, um, it's as much because of the traffic here <laughs> um, yes. and how densely populated it is. I realize geographically we're not as big as other areas for sure, but it's to get from one place in Connecticut to another place in Connecticut is is always involving traffic and highways and yeah. you know, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. It's so, a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for some people, even to go from one part of Connecticut to the other car part of Connecticut, they opt out of those events. You know, we try very hard to to spread things around, yeah. but um, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's hours and hours, you know, yeah. different parts of Connecticut, all the areas in the New England, the tri-state, yeah. I mean, and you're right, like, there's always traffic. <laughs> always traffic. It's always it's... traffic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what do you wish you'd known of, of, you know, well, let's talk about your writing journey and then, you know, what do you wish you'd known as a writer earlier on and what, what's the worst piece of writing advice you got ever? Um, I think I wish that I had understood how to listen to critiques in a different way. I think that when somebody gives you their thoughts on something, it's really two parts. It's this isn't working mm -hmm. and this is my suggestion to how to fix it. So, you know, you have too many, your character, like at one point someone said, Kate shouldn't have two children. She should have one child, which I didn't like. And what they were really saying was you haven't developed these two children enough to stand out as individual characters. Here's a suggestion to how to fix it. And I think that at the beginning, I, I spent too much time on their thinking about their fix and not that they're drawing attention to something not working because mm -hmm. more weight should be given to the first part of that statement that this isn't working, but you as the writer probably and often will have a better sense of how to fix that. Mm -hmm. So they're throwing out a suggestion. Um, you can consider it or not. But I would say pay a lot of attention to this isn't working and consider as one of the possibilities, this is how to fix it. Yeah. Um, That's such great advice, you know, because people try to write the, your book for you sometimes. Right. Um, and, and that's not helpful. So, so the best critiques are the, this isn't working, or I don't understand this character or, you know, what, whatever it is, but not, so she should be, you know, an airplane pilot instead, or so she should only have cats or something. I mean, it's like, that's great. Yeah. That's really, yeah. Um, trying to think, I, nothing is coming to mind about the worst piece of advice I got, but I will say one thing that I found so hard as a writer, and I still find hard, um, is figuring out comps, understanding comps. Yeah. I, I think that, um, getting suggestions for comps, like it, it's, it's so complicated. And when you're a new writer and you're trying to pitch agents, and I understand why comps are so important. And I guess I would say about that is I've learned 
it doesn't have to be your, it shouldn't be your writing style, the comp. It shouldn't even be, it's really like, for me, I'm like looking for sports thrillers. Like, see, sports is selling because you have Allie Reynolds, you know, and The Swell and Shiver and uh, even Kathleen West, who's writing women's fiction, but has an, an, you know, a, a professional hockey player in there. It took me a lot of time to sort of understand what a comp is, but comps are important when you approach an agent. You really need them. So I think because it's so hard, people stay away from them. Well, so for folks listening who don't know, comps are comparable titles. So it's sort of like when you're looking at a house and there are comps in the name, you know, or you're putting your house on the market and there are comps in the neighborhood. It's, it's, it's very similar. Um, And you're right. You also, I always advise folks to have several lists of comps. So depending on who you're talking to, you can pull out, you know, if this is an agent who does, um, you know, suspense, then I'm going to use this list. If this is an agent who does romantic suspense, then maybe it's, I'll add these names. And it can be about characters or setting there can be a lot of different ways of looking at comps you might need to explain them but it's also to help agents or editors be able to know where it goes on the shelf right and much as comps are frustrating and some books really don't have comps people need to know where it's going to go on the shelf how they're going to sell the book that's what it does that's very interesting about having more than one list. I love that idea. <laughs> uh, that's so smart. Um, yeah, it's just a hard thing. And I, I would just say, you know, spend the time to learn it. I didn't read as much as I was reading later on, because I think that when you're starting out to write, it's so easy to get distracted by someone else's writing. And then as you learn your craft, you're more confident in your writing. So you look for very specific things in other people's writing. Like for me with writing in the present tense, I'm always looking at how writers um, pass time. So like uh, Megan Collins in Thicker Than Water um, writes in the present tense. And she did such a good job of like, you know, passing hours with one sentence. So you didn't have to hear if she goes into her car and she, you know, turns it on and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, so you can also like read books to study specific things in craft and not just as, um, just an audience, you know, you, you need to be studying what you're reading. Yeah. Yeah, it does take away from the enjoyment of reading sometimes. (laughs) It does. It does. Read it twice. (laughs) So you've got another book coming out in September of 2024. You're, you're, you know, thinking about the third book in the series. Um, Do you think about writing another series or standalones or are there projects that you're sort of, you know, have been whirring around in your head and now you, now that you've written a couple of books, you, you're sort of thinking, oh, maybe I can tackle this now. I think at some point it might be interesting to write a book from the perspective of the athlete or the coach and not the reporter in the middle of it, maybe mm-hmm. way down the road. I mean, I'm enjoying the K Green series. So I guess I would kind of do it as long as 
you know, they want it. (laughs) But I do have other ideas kind of going in my head. I I think I, for now, I I foresee staying in this space. I, I, I'm having fun with it and enjoying it. Um, You know, I might try a little more past tense, although I don't think I'd ever go full past tense. Uh, Maybe write something from different perspectives at some point, you know, challenge myself each time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that is, that's, part of the fun. (laughs) Yeah. Lee, thank you for a great conversation for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was really enjoyable. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.